0: Hey there security peeps. It is time once again for the stateofsecurity.com podcast. Welcome to episode 4. Man, it is a gorgeous day today. I'm sitting outside in the forest. It's about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and I'll tell you, the sun is shining. It uh, got a little bit of breeze blowing. It is just fantastic. They say that humans are optimally happy at about 64 degrees Fahrenheit and I'll tell you today is one of those days that really makes you believe it. Uh, So I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about episode four. Uh, This time I get to spend just uh, about a half an hour or so with John Davis. And John Davis is a risk assessment uh, person. He works for MSI for Microsoft Inc, my company. And uh, I've known John for, gosh, Man, it's it's probably been almost twenty years now. Uh, we've worked together on a number of projects, like the eighty twenty rule of InfoSec, uh, the Stolen Data Impact or SDIM uh, project. We've worked on so many engagements together over the years, uh, and this time, uh, in order to combat some of the microphone issues we've had from Skype, uh, we sat down face to face here in Columbus, and uh, we really just. Kind of talked through some good stuff. We, uh, we touched on risk assessment, a little bit about JB's history. Uh, we talked about how to crowdsource and uh, sort of democratize security policy and processes and where we think that's going to go in the future. So this is a pretty good conversation. I'm glad to have you uh, listening in with us. This episode is brought to you by our uh, sister company, Bodhi Foundry, that is bodhifoundry.com. Bodhi Foundry is a small firm that uh, has grown out of a division of MSI, and it's focused on the business use of analytics and big data. So check it out over there, bodhifoundry.com, and uh, they've got a lot of stuff going on. They're helping uh, leverage Tiger Tracks around branding, brand health, uh, innovation, consumer trends, and really kind of bringing some non-security stuff uh, under the MSI umbrella. So uh, pretty interesting stuff going on over there. Some interesting partnerships. Check it out. As always, we're happy to have our sister company with us. But not nearly as happy as we are to have you listening. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over. Here comes John Davis. So it's a beautiful, sunny afternoon It's a pretty much a gorgeous spring day and uh i'm here in central ohio i'm uh, back from down south and today i get to sit down with a very good friend of mine someone i've known now for almost two decades it's hard to believe uh almost two decades already but uh i'm joined joining me here today in the studio is uh, john davis john thanks for coming in you bet I wouldn't miss it for the world well, uh, John, I, I, I'm going to call you J.D. here because that seems to be what uh, I've known you as all these years. Uh, That's right. I've been uh, cornered with that sobriquet for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, J.D., for those of you who don't know, you, you and I have worked together at uh, MSI, at Microsoft Inc., and, and uh, you are here you do a lot of our policy process work. You do risk assessment. You work with the engineers to help tie kind of technical details back to stuff. Um, how long have you been at MSI now? I'm uh I've been with the
1: the company now 11 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> the probably the best 11 years I ever spent. <laughs> well and, thanks. Uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great time, you know. And I do uh, mainly everything to do with with risk management, you know, as as far as the company goes and uh I have the great pleasure of getting to do a lot of the technical writing too, which I really enjoy.
0: Very cool. Now you you were not always uh, an information security person, were you? you? Your history with InfoSec and with security itself dates quite a ways back, doesn't it?
1: It does. I, I've had a varied career and done a number of different things during my life, but uh, one of the things was in the early 80s, I was in the United States Air Force and was a cryptographic linguist. And, uh what that had to do with is they not only taught you a language, but then all the different uh, sort of operational security things and sort of the spy sort of things, how to how to gather intelligence from, from raw data and, and things like that, which as a background for uh, risk management and information security, I find to be a real boon since uh, military security uh, on the risk management side, they take it seriously.
0: Now, this is pretty cool, though, because you actually, you went to the language school in Monterey, which is now, of course, so famous. Talk a little bit about what it was like in those days.
1: Oh, the, uh, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey is at one time the, the most beautiful place you could ever go to school, and it's the by far the hardest school I have ever been in. You get an entire uh, semester of language training every week for 47 weeks. And uh, if you fail a single weekly test, you're done. the The attrition rate is is severe. It's a it's a
0: true academic uh, test. Now, are there any clean Vietnamese phrases that you still remember that you could share with listeners? <laughs>
1: I don't. I don't think so. Viet, Vietnamese has the distinction of being one of the one of the most profane languages in the entire <laughs> planet. <laughs> I think there's a curse word on every page of the Vietnamese dictionary, you No, know? it's so. I would I would hesitate to, to come up with a phrase.
0: Well, that's very cool. And then <laughs> so you so you worked your uh, time through the Air Force, and at the end of that part of your career, you came back here to the states because you were you were actually living somewhere else, right? Right. Yeah, I was stationed
1: on Okinawa for years. I had uh, I was in Texas. I spent time also in the Philippines.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, is Texas was it part of the United States then or? It or was a separate place like it is today. You know, most Texans, uh, a lot of them I hear, you know, think that uh, it's not necessarily a part of the U.S. anymore. <laughs> I hear you. know,
1: it was, it was part, although you did have to, uh, I remember you had to, um, you couldn't just go to a bar to drink. You had to join the club. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that was one small difference.
0: Well, very cool. So at the end of that part of your career, you um, you decided to move away from, from the uh, Air Force and, Come back into civilian life, and uh, you did quite a number of things. And when I first met you, you were you were kind of doing non-infosex stuff, and and yet you were still reading and keeping up, and you were listening uh, to a lot of that material. So you and I ha- always had a lot to talk about.
1: Indeed, yeah, I was I was kind of at odds, you know. Uh, I had taken a, a wander yar there in 1983. I took a year off. And uh, was just getting towards the end of, uh, of my year off and knew I had to go down a different career path. And uh, uh, I think speaking to you is what led me in that direction.
0: And I've uh, been here ever since. So mm-hmm. um, the, the listeners, we, we just wanted to talk about this a little bit to give the listeners a touch of your background. This particular interview, the reason that uh, you know I kind of pulled you in, we've had so many listeners over the last few months reach out and they wanted to talk about really two topics that popped up to the to the top and that was sort of the idea of risk assessment and uh, where that fit into information security work and then um, there were a a subset of readers who really wanted to delve into policy stuff and and they were you know saying let's not uh, get yet another technical security podcast and so we We said, well, we want to try to have episodes that are across all the domains and and that. And um, so that's kind of why I I asked you to join me. Mm -hmm. Um, But so let's kind of start with, you know, first your take. I, I mean, I've known you a long time and I've heard you talk a number of times about rational risk assessment as opposed to, you know, sort of, I guess there are folks out there that just throw anything they can into the risk assessment blender and whatever comes out on the other side comes out. Um, right. Talk to me a little bit, and, and talk to the listeners a little bit about your feeling on risk assessment. Um, you know, what is it? Why is it important? Why should they be paying attention to it? Very good.
1: Well, you know, at the very basic level, risk assessment is something that each one of us does every day in our in our daily life. I mean, anytime. For example, you go uh, look out the window and you uh, you see the sky is gray and you say, oh, maybe I'll get rained on and decide to take an umbrella with you, you have done a risk assessment and you have treated that risk, okay? Now, the big difference between risk assessment that we all do every day and the kind of risk assessment that are performed by government agencies or banks is that a formal risk assessment is... Documented, and research is done, and things like that. It, for, there's some mechanism in the human mind that just looks at a written page of facts and can make more out of it than they can if you just think about it. Just just the fact of seeing it clarifies it in your mind. And so I like to I like to uh, talk about rational risk assessment, where. You use the, the basic techniques of risk assessment. I guess I better go over those a little bit. Uh, basically, you're, it's a nine step process. You, uh, first, you look, they, they, you do what's called system characterization. So, all that is is whatever you're con, uh, considering the risk of is that system. For example, if you're, if you're considering risk around your home, then it's your house and the neighborhoods you live in and the people that live in the house and that sort of thing.
0: So it's really making a list of all the different aspects and, you know, surfaces of that system.
1: Right. Yeah. What is a system? What does it touch? That sort of thing. Then you look at threats and threat actors. What can happen to this system? You know, if, if it's your house, you could have a flood, you could have a tornado, you could have a fire, you could have burglars come in. There's just a whole number of different threats that, uh, that face you. As every day whatever so write those all down you know once you're looking at the list you can you can see what maybe i've left this out or maybe this doesn't belong in here or something
0: now when you make your list of of threats and threat actors are you at all worried about or thinking about the probability i mean you know if i if i live um next door to the fairgrounds and uh, should i list the fact that maybe someday uh you know pachyderm will go crazy at a circus and run through my living room or um, you know is this a common set of of uh, threats and threat actors
1: well i think that's where the rational comes into what i was saying about rational risk assessment i like to limit my threats and threat actors to the credible you know the uh if you're uh if you're doing a risk assessment of some bank somewhere and you're worried about uh for example like the terrorist threat hitting this individual uh, branch of this bank. It's not zero, but it's its so far from uh, possibility of this actually happening in that particular bank branch that it's hardly worth considering, you know. Mm-hmm. There are a number of things like that. And, you know, you always got to consider where you are. You know, for example, uh, being here in central Ohio, we certainly wouldn't consider tidal waves or maybe even earthquakes, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that because they only happen here every thousands of years instead of, every 20 years or something like that so yeah i think you want to keep uh keep your threats and threat actors to a credible list because that way you don't get lost in complexity and you can spend your time thinking about situations that might actually arise instead of something so esoteric that why plan for it
0: okay so um all right so moving on to the next step once i know the bad guys that are out to get me or the things that can hurt me uh, what happens next?
1: Next thing is you consider how what are the vulnerabilities in that system I just characterized that could be taken advantage of by these threat actors to you know uh, to do you harm in other uh, in other words, say uh, you're a homeowner and there's a history of burglary in the uh, in the neighborhood. You know, are you vulnerable to that? Do you have an alarm system? Do you lock your windows at night? Are there bars on the windows? Those vulnerabilities are all those things, like for in this case, where a burglar could take advantage of to get into your house. Mm-hmm. So, in threats and vulnerabilities, usually work in pairs. Although it's not strictly limited to just one and two, you could have you know groups. Mm-hmm. But uh, you definitely want to want to put your your threat actors with your vulnerabilities, you know, so you say, yeah, this is something that could happen. Okay. And so once
0: I have a pretty good catalog of that, what's the next step?
1: Well, the next step is uh, deciding the possibility of occurrence or what we call likelihood of occurrence that this thing could happen and the impact if it did happen. In other words, you know, how likely is it that a burglar is actually going to break into my house during any one year, you know? And you give a rating to that. Now, that can be either what they call qualitative, which is what I always recommend, high, medium, or low, or some, something like that, or quantitative, where you actually try to put numbers on this. You know, it's going to cost me $100,000 to fix this house if somebody comes in and messes it up and takes all my stuff or something. Now, that, the problem with quantitative risk assessment is that it's so difficult to put a number on consequences you know impact you don't really you're making a guess anyway even if you try to do it quantitatively and face it impact analysis and uh, likelihood of occurrence is a bit of a guess now we in the industry we use uh, knowledge and experience to temper our our guesses but we also you know do a little research we look see what the uh, uh, what threats are prevalent right now, what vulnerabilities are big, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So that helps us get a more rational view of impact and possibility of occurrence. Then, once you have all that information in your in your mind, the next thing you go on to is controls analysis. Well, what do I have in place? At, at home, you know, I lock my doors. I've got a, a security lamp on, out back that goes on anytime somebody moves around back there, you know. And you, you look at those controls. Next is uh, the next part of it, all that information put together determines risk. So you think, well, let me see, I've got this, I've got this. What is the risk? Uh, I've got a pretty high risk here because I don't uh, have an alarm system or something, you say to yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's where you uh, decide to augment your your controls, what's called controls, which are just like I say, controls are all just mechanisms that, help thwart the the threat actors
0: and so for uh something like burglary you know the controls are might be you know door locks window locks um motion sensors maybe i have a dog maybe i've got bars on the windows and so you're as you catalog all of that then uh you're ending up with some sort of of residual risk right Right. after the controls there's there's some level of risk that still remains whether that's high medium and low or zero to 10 or whatever um, uh, so and in that determination right um, where where do you suggest readers go to get that information how do they derive what's left over after controls boy now
1: that's a uh, uh... That's a good question. I think it's a lot like um, impact analysis and uh, likelihood determination. I think a lot of that has to do with your own knowledge or any other knowledge you can find, like on the net or something, of what uh, other people have done and or what you think. Of, have these controls I put in place, is this really going to prevent somebody from getting in my house? Or is it going to protect prevent them 90 some percent of the time from getting into my house you know or whatever you've got to make some kind of either qualitative or quantitative judgment on that Uh, once again uh, usually with unless you're doing something very formal with a very large organization i try to do these things qualitatively because the answer comes out easier and is usually just as accurate
0: now one of the things that that the listeners have uh, questioned in the, in the feedback when I was talking about this uh, show on Twitter and some of the other ones is they've asked a lot of organizations are struggling with, do we do risk assessment holistically across the board? Do we, you know, in other words, do we do a risk assessment that looks at the whole organization or do we do a risk assessment on specific lines of business? Or even in some cases, some places now are starting to break that down even further, and they're doing individual risk assessments on different business processes. Maybe they've got one for, you know, accounts receivable. They've got one for uh, their, you know, SAP systems. Um, those types of things. What's your stance on that? I, is this a series of overlaying layers, or is this something that? Um, that every organization needs to dig into the minute systems, or, or what's your take on that? Where should they be applying risk assessment?
1: Well, certainly for any any business or anybody that um, really wants a, a a good outcome to this, I would I would think that you need all levels of it. I mean, if you have a, a business, you've never had a risk assessment at at a high level, at, at an enterprise level, where you look at all the business and all the functions as an entity then that's something you certainly need to do as part of planning your business in the first place you know or evaluating your business if it's a pre-existing business you've got to look at this in advance and see what is the overall risk from this system and that's usually something that you only have to do once or on occasion then you you look at individual individual processes individual mechanisms and remember that Risk assessment usually comes into play when there's changes. If you change the system that you're protecting, like put in a new software package or a whole new set of machines or hire a new uh, service provider of some sort, you definitely want to do a risk assessment on that. See all the different parts of the business it could touch and where danger could come in. If you need to adjust your controls or add any new controls in to take account of that. Uh, most assuredly, uh, uh, you should do that. Or if you, uh, if the actual threat environment changes, if you've got a new set of attackers, a new, uh, a new technology out there that that uh, allows them to do something different, or just different people, then you should do risk assessments then. But the, you know, the overall risk assessments, I, I think you should probably do periodically, maybe very periodically. The Certainly, you always do risk assessments, though, when, when there's changes and new processes or something like that, because, once again, this this isn't a, a hard thing to do. You don't have to make a risk assessment into some long and drawn-out process. I've known uh, companies where they have a little one-page uh, thing that just, just says the nine points like I've been talking about, and... Uh, if they're going to add a new system or something, they just get the all the business heads and management and, and power users concerned in a room, and they go through the thing, uh, through the through the paper and and look at the different points of the risk assessment and uh, make a decision right there, you know, or uh, say, well, I need more information on uh, from networking, you know. So they go out and and uh, and look into something a little bit, but usually it's a very quick process and if something can be accomplished in just a couple of hours, but I it's. I think risk assessment to businesses is they avoid it like going to the doctor or something there. It's almost, they're almost scared of it, but it doesn't have to be a big drawn out process. You know, certainly the enterprise level one should be, this is more major thing to do. It's a little bit drawn out, but even that can be done in a matter of weeks.
0: So that's not, that's not awful. and, and certainly it, it has proven to be very useful to the clients and, and folks that I've, I've seen them, you know, work with. So, J.D., if, if, if I'm a new CIO and I just joined an organization, uh, and should the first thing I look at be something like a risk assessment? Should I look at or, or ask about an enterprise risk assessment in, in the environment? Absolutely. I mean, uh, if you're a new CIO and
1: you want to get an idea of what's going on, you look at uh, at the risk assessments that have been done, the vulnerability assessments, the penetration tests, the business impact analysis that have been done by this business. It'll give you a better idea of what's going on around the business than anything, especially if they have a BIA and a risk assessment combined. You get all the business processes and the major machine parts and everything is all there for you so you can look at that it sort of gives you a a risk picture right off the bat and if you go into an organization as a brand new CISO and you don't see an enterprise level risk assessment and they've never done a business impact analysis then you know you've got some risk management work to do.
0: Now that's that's interesting because um, historically we've always sort of uh, pointed to disaster recovery and and the folks that work in the business uh, uh, intelligence arenas and and sort of those underlying um, processes, we've pointed to them as strong allies. In fact, um, for many years, you know, the common conventional wisdom was to talk to the DR people about what was actually out there because uh, the things that mattered should be under DR and those guys should be able to tell you what you do for a living. Uh, even in a large organization. Um, how much of that is still true today? Do, do you feel like, um, you know, folks that are working in information security and in-risk assessment, should they have a relationship with those DR and BIA folks? Um, and, and how tightly coupled are those in most large organizations? Honestly, um, I think that's
1: most important. In fact, business impact analysis is, uh, is characteristically done By disaster recovery and business continuity teams that's a that's a that's a function of business continuity is to do uh business impact analysis and as far as you know for example setting up an information security program itself uh there's nothing more useful than a business impact analysis in doing that or in performing your risk assessment it already tells you all because you know like brent's saying here when uh, when you're doing disaster recovery you already know what your critical equipment is. You already know what your critical software is, who your critical people are, what the critical business processes are. And that is your business. It's, it's simply a picture of your business in, in quant, more
0: quantitative form. Now, this is sort of interesting because it, it comes back to what has emerged as a common theme in this podcast uh, over the last several months. And, and that is, uh, there, is, there is a language barrier. There's a uh, context barrier between most information security folks. Um, the folks that are out there every day, they're running, you know, firewalls. They're looking at logs. They're, um, you know, reviewing incident response data and intrusion detection uh, information. And maybe they're, you know, they're fighting hackers on the front line if, if that's what uh, they, they believe that they're doing. Um, but there's a context problem between those folks and your traditional DRBC folks, the folks that are um, They they share a commonality in that they're both interested in systems, but a lot of times, uh, you know, information security groups tend to be significantly more technical than you know DRBC folks. How do you, how do you get those guys together and and talking and and guys and ladies? It's not just guys, but how do we get the teams together and get them talking together in a in a way that um, strips away that context problem?
1: You know, I, I think you've hit on one of the biggest problems, especially among uh, corporate America here, and having good information security in their in their businesses. Is that the bigger you get, the more sections you have in your ID, IT, and disaster recovery department, and the less people talk to each other. I mean, you'll have. You'll have the disaster recovery guys, you'll have the risk management guys, you'll have the networking guys and the workstation guys and the server guys, and none of them talk to each other. They all are in their own room, and their own shop, and uh, solving that I think you have to do holistically. I think that the IT and everybody, all the business departments and everybody else needs to share information among themselves on a regular basis. And the more closely related you are, the more you share. It's like, uh, you know, everybody in the business ought to get together for an annual report or a semi-annual report or something, and the uh, uh, people in the IT department should, on a regular, like, weekly basis, communicate with, among them, each different department in there, and the risk people and the disaster recovery and business continuity people. You're all doing one job. I mean, the, the one thing about information security that, uh, in businesses that we all ignore since we tried to make it the job of firewalls or something to make to cure the problem, is that information security has to be addressed by each and every person in the business, from the, the, the just a user at the desk to the CEO, all have to have information security in mind, and they need to communicate. I think a lot. Sometimes it gets into like almost this ego thing. Uh, one of the things I never, I remember, I never understood when I was in the military, was. Uh, Inter-military inter, uh, rivalries, like the Air Force would get down on the Navy, and the Navy would get down on the Army, and different people in different sections. You're all on one great big team, but you know for some reason humans are a bit contentious, and we know we're all egotistical, and we tend to uh, protect our rice bowls and uh, just uh, keep to ourselves, and I think that is a really pig-headed way to think about business in general, and especially information security.
0: So then um, I guess, you know, we could go back to something that Bill Semph talked about a little while ago, and that is buy some pizzas, buy some sodas, and maybe if uh, your organization allows uh, some adult beverages, get everybody in a room pretty routinely and just let them talk and um, uh, build relationships and friendships. So um, based on that, I mean, J.D., do you, you know, do you feel like there ought to be a pizza party fund? For in the infosec budget absolutely absolutely little prize you're uh, I'm a big
1: believer in uh, the old adage that you can't catch a lot more flies with honey than you do vinegar you do, it, I think the wrong thing to do is punish people for doing bad information security but I think the right thing to do is reward people for get for doing good information security you know and it doesn't have to be elaborate or costly
0: so folks you heard it here first, Uh, the next line item that should be on your budget next year is definitely pizza parties and soda parties to get people talking. I think it's a a great thing, not just for infosec. It's probably just good for being human too. Right. Um, So JD, we're, we're uh, got a little bit of time left. I want to back up just a little bit and step away from risk assessment. And let's talk about policy because I, this is one of those things that there are some policy podcasts out there and And I I know that uh, one of the things that, you know, everybody in the industry struggles with is policies and how do you get users to read them? And and then more importantly, how do you actually get them to do something about it? Uh, Everybody tends to think this is pretty dry. Now, you've got a little bit of a unique approach. You've written some great policies and uh, I've seen you uh, do pullouts and and you've made it almost more magazine-like in the look and feel of it when you're designing policy. Is that really to keep users engaged? yeah you know i i think policy uh, well you know it simply is uh
1: writing down how you want to do things you know it's it's sort of writing down the opera operational modes and rules you know and things like this and uh there just is there you there's nothing much to it like risk assessment it's just common sense stuff and i do think it's it should be um, it should be very accessible to the user that the user should find it, uh, they should be able to find the, the parts that are pertinent to them very easily. That they should be able to make suggestions for policy changes based on the uh, on what they see in their daily job experience on a very easy level. In fact, I think that they should probably be rewarded for uh, coming up with new policies that that benefit the company financially. I, I remember when I was in the Air Force, one of the things that I found best about them was that if you made, uh, if you came up with a new technique or a new way of doing something that saved them money, they would pay you a percentage of that money in cash. Wow. And, and buddy, that got some people thinking, and it uh, it made people really pay attention to what they were doing. As I said before, I mean, when you're talking about um, policy and, and uh, risk policy in the Air Force, you're talking about something if you don't follow it, people might get killed, you know, or a war might start or something like that. So they take this stuff seriously, and uh, I think from them you, you, we should all take our cue.
0: So there's a couple of things going on right now in the policy world. You know, it, traditionally policy documents and, and the processes around them have been pretty dull. It's, it's you know, you usually come on board, you get a notebook, and the notebooks you know full of thirty different documents all stuffed in there, and and you know maybe if you're lucky an index. Uh, to get you from place to place, but now what you're starting to see in the last you know couple of years is organizations starting to embed graphics. They're doing uh, you know those infographs of of different pieces of data inside the policy document. Um, just recently, I did a policy review for a client, and it had cartoons mm-hmm. um, embedded right in the policy document. And they they um, they said that the readership of uh, policy. Uh, documents shot up when they put those in and they knew because they started getting comments back from users so in, in your experience jD is that it, is this sort of movement to a more consumer oriented document is is that something that's worth investing in
1: oh I think so I, I i I used a system one time I don't want to mention the name of this actual software system but it was lovely it had uh First, you could put in the what we, the overhead the overlying policies, the Uber policies. Like uh, for example, you know, you will control access to physical and electronic assets in this organization. Then underneath that, there was levels of, of policy depending on some might be pertinent to you and your particular line of business for that organization, and maybe not. So you could come down and pick and choose. Well, the overall policy relates to me, and then this subsection B relates to me. And then you could go right down further yet into the procedures because policy isn't much good unless you have procedures written down to carry it out correctly, you mm-hmm. know. And, that, um, and then from there, also if the, the people could go through, just read the policy that was accessible to them. It did have graphics like you're talking about, little jokes, things to make it uh, more palatable to the consumer. And if they wanted to... Uh, uh, if they didn't agree with some of the policy or they thought they had something to add to it, they could simply uh, type into this program and it would send it right up to the risk manager and they and the risk management board would decide whether or not that new policy
0: was going to be incorporated into the overall policy of the company. It was beautiful and people used it. Now, this is interesting, too, because you, you just brought up almost like crowdsourcing the policy out to the people who are using it. And uh just recently there's there's been a number of products coming onto the market that uh, almost allow like a wiki approach to writing policy and um, I, I think it's an amazing change to the industry it's one of those things where you can sort of uh, uh, make it more democratic about the you know across the user base and um, I know we've heard when, when we're in the field, but sometimes you you really do get a more of a feel for the truth because the users start to tell you, well, it's great that you say this, but, you know, in reality, we haven't had that for years, right? There, um, The tape should go in this particular kind of case. Well, those cases broke 20 years ago and nobody ever replaced them and uh, <laughs> all that stuff. So um, do you feel like this is the future of, of policy and, and, you know, information security policies?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, just like we were talking about before with risk management, what you have got to cons- consider is all of this is so dynamic. I mean, the risk picture for your organization changes really on a daily basis with all new threats and new mechanisms and new IT systems that you're putting in place. So I think, I think it's very good to make this a uh, reactive thing that can be uh, easily understood and easily changed to fit dynamic situations.
0: Yep. Now, JD, that's fascinating, and I, I think um, I do think this sort of uh, democratization of policy is a is a thing that is really going to be up and coming, and uh, it's definitely something that the listeners should be you know keeping their eye on. Uh, and if you're an inventor, uh, there's a great market space here that's available uh, for that. So, JD, I know you're not always focused on risk assessment and policy development. I know. Uh, you worked on things like the eighty twenty rule of information security. You were one of the four principals that worked with me on uh, the stolen data impact model, the Estim, um, and uh, that kind of stuff. What is it? What's on your agenda now? What's next for JD? What research are you doing? What are you looking at for the next uh, you know year or so? Well, you know, I, what I my goal right
1: now. Is to try to get to all the the businesses and stuff that I'm concerned with to realize the value of uh, business impact analysis. as as a risk management person, I find so much of what I need to do my job incorporated into this one little mechanism. And the, the nice thing about it is is a lot of the work is unlike policy work and uh, and. Uh, Risk assessment work was only done by a few people. When you do business impact analysis, you involve every department and every power user and every manager in the place. You've got to have input from all of them to put it together. And uh, it's just it's just an amazingly valuable tool, and I don't think enough people have embraced the fact that, that they need to do this.
0: So if, if I wanted to learn more about uh, BIAs, where would I go? Is that something that... Uh, my local ISACA chapter can help me with, or are there you know, good sources of information out there on the net about how to do a BIA?
1: Oh, yeah, you betcha. You know, uh, certainly in the financial institutions, they've embraced this greatly since, oh, more than the last 10 years. And uh, so you can certainly go to the FFIEC website. They have a whole uh, uh, section on business impact analysis. You, you can find it uh, in NIST. Uh, guidance among the 800 series. Uh, you just go to the net and uh, you, uh, go to Google and put in business impact analysis, and you'll find a ton of references on there, uh, specifics on how you can do it. Heck, check our um, uh, blog site here on uh, msi.com. There's, uh, there's more than one uh, blog out there on, on business impact analysis. it tell you a lot, a lot more about it and how you can go about doing your own.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely true. It's we do we cover that uh, topic quite heavily on stateofsecurity.com, and um, of course, if you go to microsoft.com if you need help with that stuff, uh, you can you can get right there and talk to JD about it. Um, let's uh, let's change gears for just one moment more. Let's let's talk about a common question I ask just about all the guests here. If you if you're talking to a young person who's getting into uh, information security and they're asking gosh uh, JDI I want to be a risk assessment person I think it's fascinating um, how you know how do I get started what's your advice to them uh, to build a career in risk assessment policy process work
1: well, First of all, you know, I think you need to have the right mindset. If if you're a person that likes the big picture, that um, uh, likes to think of of subjects like that, like you know, such as risk and how to treat it, I think you're. uh, This is the proper business for you. I, I certainly, when I started myself, I uh, first thing I did was read the ISO documents. I remember back in those days it was seventeen seven ninety nine, but now. If I were you, I'd read ISO 27001 and 27002, go read through the, the NIST 800 series. Now This could keep you occupied for a year just on its own, but uh, there is a tremendous amount of literature out there on uh, risk management. If, uh, if reading isn't your bag, there are tons of uh, podcasts and webcasts and uh, uh, YouTube videos that deal with this subject. You can go to uh, sans, H-A-N-S They've got a whole list of webcasts and podcasts you can go through. And there's another uh, a number of other websites out there. But doing risk management does entail a lot of reading and specifics. So you need to like to read and you need to be able to hold a lot of information in your mind at one time.
0: Yeah, that is very much true, and, and I think that um, that's a good point. Uh, and if you're, I would also point out that if you're a technical security person, um, but uh, you're sort of sitting at, at a crossroads in your career and trying to decide whether you're going to deep dive and, and be a technical uh, you know, lead security person for the rest of your career, or if you would like to sort of back up and, and take a more direct path to, toward management, Oftentimes risk assessment, uh, BIA folks, uh, the, the folks that are working hand in hand between security people and the policy or, or excuse me, the, the actual lines of business. Those are the folks that do tend to uh, have an easier path toward management, toward uh, you know, executive positions, that kind of stuff. Um, and definitely if, if you're going to look at being a CISO uh, or even a CIO, you definitely need to understand how this stuff works. It's a lot of risk assessments, a lot of policy, it's a lot of BIA work.
1: It is. I mean, uh, uh, like Brent's saying, if you have a a good background in risk management like that, it's it's very helpful uh, when you go into the management level of any kind of large organization nowadays. Since IT and the whole information processing structure is so much a part of any business now
0: so jd uh we're at just a little over the 40 minute mark we're going to close this up uh-huh. but if the readers want to get in touch with you if they if they just say gosh i can't get enough of jd i want to hear more from him uh or i have some questions about things that he covered today how can they do that how can they get a hold of you well you can certainly reach out to me at uh,
1: j davis at microsoft.com and i'd be happy to get back to you you can uh you can follow my blogs on uh, the state of security or our Microsoft.com dot, uh, dot website. And uh, I'd be happy to help you anytime.
0: And uh, no Twitter, though. There's no Twitter here for the folks that are our uh, tweeters. Well, you might be able to get me that
1: way, and you might not. I'm a little spotty on those. And, and so <laughs> I check it once in a while, and sometimes I don't.
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome uh jd thank you for joining us thanks for sharing uh what is a very fascinating history in information security and and all of your uh vast wisdom and experience oh Uh, thank you i I really think the uh the listeners have been asking for uh, this particular type of content and i really appreciate you uh, joining us today uh as for you uh security monkeys uh we hope you enjoy this podcast uh but uh we're going to put an end to this spring day and uh, close things off. Um, JD, again, thanks for joining us. and thanks for listen, having me. Listeners, uh, as always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed uh, today's version of stateofsecurity.com podcast. We'll see you again soon. Thanks again for listening to the State of Security podcast. You can read more about uh, security information this the podcast itself, as well as engage with folks in a blog format at stateofsecurity.com. Of course, this uh, episode is made possible by Microsoft Inc. That's M-I-C-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-D, like problemsolved.com. Check us out on the web. We've got uh, more than 20 years' experience doing very, very interesting information security stuff. Uh, whether it's assessments or, or tearing apart equipment and uh, applications in our security lab or helping folks with incidents or design policy and process. Uh, over the last 20-plus uh, years, we've done a lot of different things there, so be sure to check us out. That's Microsoft.com. And until next uh, episode of the podcast, you can always touch base with us on Twitter. We are at Microsoft or on personally at LB h-u-s-t-o-n that's at lb on twitter love to hear your feedback we're continuing to work through the microphone issues and some of the capture issues thanks for bearing with us on that and uh with that said uh we're over and out until next time stay safe out there